Welcome to the New Zionist Podcast, a brand new show from New Zionist Congress. I'm Noah Shufatinsky. I'm Isabella Hazan. And I'm Blake Flayton. We're your three hosts, and we're here to offer a new, young, and authentic take on all things Zionism, Jewish culture, Israel, and politics. But first, what is New Zionist Congress? We at NZC are here to build a space where young people can meet to discuss their passion for Jewish self-determination, learn about Jewish history, Israeli history, and contemporary Jewish issues. In the name of every Jew who has ever lit a candle in the darkness, we're here to build a bonfire. Join our community of empowered young Judeans. So make sure to follow us on Twitter at New Zionist, on Instagram at New Zionist Congress, and make sure to sign up and become an official member at NewZionist.org. I'm a proud part of the diaspora. In my heart, I hold Jerusalem and Africa. Kick the side of our land and started gassing us. Till we put our foot down, cause we had enough. Check out the flag that I'm waving. Two blue stripes and a huge star, David. Check out the flag that I'm waving. Keep shooting rockets, but you never gonna take it. You guys, it's Father's Day. Mazal tov to all the fathers. Shout out Herzl, father of Zionism. Noah, do they have Father's Day in Israel? Yeah, but I don't think it's today because I was mentioning when I was at Shabbat last week that, oh, it's it's Father's Day on Sunday. And they're like, oh, really? Already? Like, I didn't... They corrected me to say how to say it in Hebrew. Yom Ha'av, the day of the Father. Um, but yeah, I guess it's some other day. But shout out to my dad, the best dad ever, Dr. Anton Shufutinsky. But I'm like, I really love to share with y'all my plan on what I'm going to get him for Father's Day. But... This is going to air before I'm able to give it to him when he gets to Israel next month. So I have to stay low-key about it. Can you give us a hint? No, he's he's really intuitive. He'll pick up on it and it won't be a surprise. So I got to keep it. <laughs> Happy Father's Day to Daniel Ross Flayton, Shlomo Ben Yosef. Um, <laughs> I can disclose the present that I got for him. I ordered him a bunch of scotch glasses to my house because my dad is like super straight. And loves, I, I love him to death. My dad, his favorite thing in the world to do is to pour himself a glass of scotch and sit on the couch and watch football. I know that's like a basic thing for a lot of dads, especially in the States, but he does it in a way that it has a sort of gravitas to it because it's like a staple in my family that like everything's going well and everybody's happy if Dan's happy. And if Dan's happy, he's on the couch watching the, watching the game. So he really enjoyed that present. And I called him at like 7 a.m. sharp this morning and I was like, happy Father's Day, my dude. And he was like, thanks, my dude. <laughs> so happy Father's Day, Dan Dan. So shout out to my dad. I guess it's my turn, Alan. He has so many names, Hebrew names, because we're doing this. Eliyahu Miman Shimon, which is a lot of Jewishness in one name. Um, he woke me up this morning, actually. So I got to tell him Father's Day earlier. And after we're done recording, there's a cute little like party happening. Because it's also my um, nephew's, I think, second birthday already. That's crazy. So it's going to be a cute family gathering. I'm excited. Oh, we love, we love Jewish dads. Everybody has like the, the stereotypes surrounding Jewish mothers, which by the way, I mean, my mom <laughs> I felt that. I felt is the epitome of a New York Jewish mother. My mom is so extra. My mom talks a thousand words per second. My mom is on your ass 24-7 calling you to make sure you're not sick. Uh, so dramatic about everything. And if you tell one person, if you tell her one thing about your life, 
every single other Jew in the Phoenix, Arizona metro area knows about it. That's my mom. <laughs> I think your mom DM'd me, Blake. What it's, did she po- say? it's very possible. I don't know. We're like we're like Instagram friends now. Oh my god! Yeah, she loves. She's she's friends with everyone. She's she <laughs> follows like she follows Rudy Ruckman because she thinks he's hot. Um, which I mean, she's good taste. Um, <laughs> <laughs> she loves all the little Jewish activists. Noah's mom's cool as hell too. Noah's mom is cool as hell. She's gonna be at the march where both of y'all are speaking in a couple weeks. Oh, I'm excited to meet her. Yeah, she's excited to meet both of you. Like we have to take a picture. I'm so excited to meet her. Does she live in DC? No, right now she's like outside of the Philadelphia area for now, and then coming to Israel where everyone else needs to come. Yalla. I'm a proud part of the diaspora. Here at NZC, we love celebrating important and inspiring Jews and allies. But we also have to throw shade where shade is due. And we call this segment our Hamans and Habibis of the Week. Our Habibis are people who we admire and who we feel should be highlighted for their work and activism. Our Hamans, however, are people who are working against the common goals of the Jewish people and they're canceled. We'd love for them to just shut up and go away. So my Hamans of the Week, unfortunately, are fellow Jews, fellow Israelis, and they are anybody who chose to attend last week's march, nationalist flag march in Jerusalem. Um, This is an event where right-wing Israelis roll up to Jerusalem and parade around in their blue and white flags, and by doing so, desecrate the blue and white flag um, and tarnish its meaning and tarnish its power, and I think what it stands for for many of us, because they say things like death to Arabs, the second Nakba is coming, you will all end up in refugee camps, a good Arab is a dead Arab, may your village burn, your religion is rubbish, Uh, things of that nature. Um, And the streets are cleared for them. You know, there's a police presence that, in my personal opinion, seems more intent on making sure that all of this goes smoothly, which means apprehending and intimidating people who want to object to it rather than trying to shut it down uh, for the hateful display of bigotry that it is. And it's so upsetting. It makes me sick to see the capital of Israel, Jerusalem, being used for this type of display. Um, And so I definitely think that they are working against the interests of the Jewish people because this is not my Zionism. This is, I know, not Isabella's Zionism. This is not Noah's Zionism. And this is not the Zionism of the vast, 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 vast majority of Jews, even Jews like us who consider themselves very Zionist. When Israeli Jews do, you know, horrible things and say horrible things, Jews are able to have a backbone and condemn it. Not even a backbone. We want to condemn it because, you know, why wouldn't we? It's gross. But it's just it, it's a shitty it's a shitty situation all around when you when you see, you know, Israeli flags being associated with this type of ideology. But here at New Zionist Congress, we're committed to calling that shit out. Okay, so that very dark subject aside, my Habibi of the week is the one and only Eve Barlow. Eve Barlow is a music journalist, and just recently, over the past year or so has become a guiding light for Zionists on the internet who want a clear, authentic, and really edgy voice on pro-Israel activism. Eve has used her 
expanding platform on both Twitter and Instagram to advocate for Israel, to advocate for the Jewish people, and to fight anti-Semitism. And she has been the target of so much vitriol and hatefulness and bullying, um, especially these last couple months, um, because she's a Jewish Zionist woman who refuses to shut up. And she's badass for that. <laughs> and we are lucky enough to be joined by Ms. Eve Barlow right now. Eve, how are you? I'm great. I'm good. I had a wild Saturday night out that I'm piecing together currently on a Sunday morning. But, you know, it's, uh, yeah, I'm great. I'm doing well. I'm, I'm fresh from a hike. I'm enjoying That's right. the insane... I'm not enjoying the insane heat of Los Angeles, actually. That would be a lie. Um, but, you know, I'm staying hydrated. You do post a lot of pictures of yourself hiking. I love a hike. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Me too. Do you listen to do you listen to music? Do you listen to podcasts? Do you listen to nature? Like what's what's your go-to? I listen to nature when my wireless headphones have run out of battery. <laughs> Mm. which sometimes happens and that's a bummer um no I I try sometimes sometimes I don't listen to anything and I just try and clear my head but mostly I'm listening to music it's my favorite time to listen to everything and anything and I have a ton of playlists playlists are actually my love language so I make playlists for my friends all the time uh ranging from all sorts of genres, decades, you know, places, whatever. So I, and as you know, I'm a huge music head. So yeah. And I, I just don't really listen to podcasts that much, you know, in general, maybe like one or two a week, but not, not an everyday thing. Yeah. Y'all heard it here first. One or two podcasts a week. It's definitely New Zionist podcast. You know, you heard it here first. <laughs> <laughs> Make us one of For them. Sure. Definitely. Um, but yeah, I guess I want to actually know what would be your three go-to playlists? I know that's like hard to narrow down. I can't ask you to narrow down one, but if you had to sum Ooh. them up in like a genre or something, if you're going to go on a hike right now on another hike, what would you what would you be bumping? That is that is a t- that's a tough question. Um I made a psych playlist yesterday that I've been bumping all weekend. So um, it has like super psychedelic Beatles, some Mick Jagger solo stuff, some T-Rex. There's a bit of Serge Gainsbourg on on there. There's some Velvet Underground. There's some Gun Club. So that's that's a really great playlist that I've been enjoying this weekend. Um, I also make some like ratchet hip hop playlists with, you know, I'm a big fan of Sweetie and Doja Cat. And uh I've been I've been cooking up some really great playlists in that in that realm. Doja Cat is Jewish. Is she, she is, right? She is. Yes. Can confirm yeah, she is. I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure. And every time, every time she says, my shit, what does she say? Every time she says Tia Tamara, I'm like, <laughs> Jewish. <laughs> yeah, she's the best. Eve, we were supposed to, we never did. I contacted you about this last year. We were supposed to do a live stream together where we gushed and spilled beans about how much we love Troy Sivan. Totally. Who is a nice Jewish boy turned international pop sensation. He's like one of my favorite people on earth. And he's, he's comes from a modern Orthodox family. In I fact, know. He, 
His name is Troy Malay. That's his real name. But Sivan is his middle name, and his parents gave him the middle name Sivan because he was born in the Hebrew month of Sivan. So that's why his name is Troy Sivan, and his birthday was just a couple days ago. I did not know that. That's incredible. Yeah. Wow. I remember us having that conversation, and I don't know why we haven't, we never got around to it. Wait, so if broadening that scope just a little bit, who are your favorite Jewish musicians? I know you've written about Amy Winehouse. Oh, of course. I mean, absolute legend, icon, gone too soon, obviously. Um, I My favorite bad Jew is Lou Reed. He is just such a bad Jew, just legendary bad Jew. Um, Take a walk on the wild side. Yeah, amazing, amazing artist, but also just so unapologetic. Like some of my, you know, favorite interviews of all time, you can just look up some of his like most, some of his rudest, frankly, interactions with journalists. I mean, he just didn't give a shit. Love Lou. Um, Barbara, Barbara Streisand, but like, she's not even, I don't even count her as just a singer because obviously he got babs, but, um, but yeah. Explain to the audience, explain to the fools at home what EGOT stands for. So EGOT is when you get an Emmy, a Grammy, an Oscar and a Tony. And I don't know how many people have an EGOT, but I don't think it's many people. It's a very select pool of exceptional human beings, including our very own Barbara Streisand. But I finally got to see Barbara live in (gasps) LA. When? At Staples Center about three years ago. And she sang Papa Can You Hear Me? And I cried. From Yentl. I cried. Iconic film Yentl. I could cry just remembering the experience of crying while hearing her impact me in the same physical space. It was insane. She is on the dream. She's like dream bucket list interview. I can't. I I have to figure that out. Yeah. But yeah, those are some of my faves. I think that's a really solid list. I think that (laughs) definitely putting me on some stuff. Um, so I guess, again, to sort of broaden, uh, broaden the conversation a little bit, would love to hear a little bit about your story, your background, and then also a little bit about how you got into music journalism uh, to begin with. Yeah, well, I'm a Scottish Jew. There are not many of us, obviously, but there is me. And <laughs> it's there's, you and Ben Freeman are the only ones. me and Ben ones. Freeman. We're the only ones. <laughs> we just kind of emerged out of a, out from under a rock. Um Yeah, so I grew up in Glasgow in Scotland. I was always, you know, always loved my Judaism, was always really active in my community growing up. But I was also um, a really, like, academic kid and a bit of a geek and studied really hard. And I was also obsessed with pop culture, completely obsessed with music and film. And TV. I was really obsessed with Buffy the Vampire Slayer for some reason. Anyway, I mean, for every reason. Only the best of us were. Only the best of us were. So I was really, I was really, you know, I grew up in a time that I think was extremely um, rich with, with amazing pop culture. Like the 90s were it for me anyway, you know, I speaking as a, an ancient person. Um, so I so I grew up with that backdrop and then I went to university in Manchester 
when I was 17 in England and I studied law, actually, which is an undergraduate degree in the UK. Wow. And because, yeah, I was I was obsessed with pop culture, but I was also a good Jewish girl. And my dad is a doctor and my mom made the house and I was going to become a doctor or a lawyer. That was, you know, that was the plan. So... So law was the one and I studied law. And then when I graduated, it was 2007, 2008, when there was, you know, a huge recession. And it was really difficult for graduates to find work, even if they had, you know, very like vocational degrees. And um, so that was kind of when I threw the baby out with the bathwater and was like, well, like, fuck it. If I, I, I've studied my ass off and I got the, I did the thing that I was supposed to do and it's not working. So I am going to follow rock bands around the world and write about them, which, you know, was delightful (laughs) for my family. (laughs) They're like, what? <laughs> Why? <laughs> um, so, yeah, so that's what I started. I started, do- I just hustled my ass off. Um, I hustled. I didn't know anyone in journalism. I didn't know anyone in the music industry, but I knew that I had a lot of opinions about music. And at the time, things, you know, Social media was still, I mean, it wasn't exactly in its nascent period, but it was still a place where you could kind of like carve out uh, a unique niche for yourself. Mm. And I just started blogging about music and tweeting about music. And eventually I got internships with my favorite music magazines in London. And I essentially uh, refused to leave it's like, does everyone need another <laughs> you coffee? You were a squatter. Yeah. You were a squatter, yeah. It's like, you, need, you need another cup of tea. That's how you get jobs the most efficient way. Totally. Yeah. You just make people lots of cups of tea, and then, you know, they're highly caffeinated, and they want you to stick around. So that's that's kind of, that's what happened. Oh, that's amazing. You really just made your own way. I did, yeah. How come that didn't happen to me when I worked on Capitol Hill? All I did was get coffee for random people and senators and congressmen, and no one ever asked me to stay. <laughs> Oh, no one asked me Maybe. to stay. I just didn't leave. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and they saw no problem with it. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. exactly. You know. Yeah. So it was a glorious, it's been a glorious journey. And yeah, I mean, it's my dream. It was my dream to write about music at these. Like, the magazines that I wound up interning at were my Bibles when I was a teenager, you know. Um yeah, it was amazing. Wow. It was really good fun. So Eve, you're a world-renowned music journalist. And now you are an emerging, and more than an emerging, you are a leader in the pro-Israel Jewish space. You're a Jewish leader that we all look up to. How do you find that your background as a music journalist has impacted your a- activism and vice versa? That is such a good question. And nobody's ever asked me that before. Um, so thank you. I think that... I think about this a lot, actually, the the fact that I, for years, you know, people talk about how much I get trolled online. And I mean, it's, we all get trolled. It's a sight to behold to see some of the ways in which we all get trolled. Um, but honestly, speaking freely about music has given, and, and being a critic, 
and existing in such a like hot space like that for so long really prepared me to give zero shits about being hated online. Like I, it doesn't, I mean, sure, some of it is really awful and you have your bad days sometimes, but I really developed such a, a thick skin as we say. But I think also the ways in which my music journalism have affected my advocacy I, for years, I wrote stories about identity driving artists because it became, you know, I, I told people's human stories. I wanted, that's that's what made me so interested in music and art in the first place is just the narratives around the human condition because that's what it's that's what it's all about who are these people why do they make this music why does it sound this way what does it say about their life and their history and um who they want to be in the world and and what does that communicate about the types of people who are drawn to listening to the music you kind of have to you have to explore all of that in order to be able to understand art itself and then write about it and I had the absolute honor of, you know, sitting down in rooms with some of the greatest artists I could ever like wish to meet. And I always wanted to get something different out of them. And a lot of the um, conversations that we had would be, would be driven by, I don't like to use the word identity politics because I think it's, you know, that's become a difficult issue for all of us, but definitely driven by um, new identity narratives that were less popular, you know, more when the Me Too movement emerged, suddenly you had a wave of women who were a lot bolder about telling their stories. And that became important as there was a public reckoning on misogyny and sexism was the same with the growing popularity or growing visibility around LGBTQ plus issues. Suddenly I found myself being able to tell stories I'd been trying to tell for years about queer artists um, where, you know, they were being tokenized and nobody would, would provide enough real estate space to tell these stories. So I was, I was operating on that level, telling other people's stories. And eventually what I came to see was that I had this captive audience in this space where nobody was really telling the Jewish narrative. Nobody was talking about this. And I thought, well, while I have a captive audience that understands that I'm part of this progressive discussion and conversation, and I've been adding to it, I want to see if I can hold these people's attention, having a conversation about you know, a facet, one of my multitudes that I feel is ignored by this community all the time or or is proactively excluded. Um, and I couldn't really hold both truths in my hand anymore, having the exclusion of the Jewish narrative and helping to promote all of these other narratives. I wasn't really prepared to be quiet about the part of my identity that I was most worried was being expelled from the conversation because I'm also a queer person. I'm also female identifying and a feminist and affected by all of those issues. And 
I never felt invisible in those other issues, but I always felt invisible in my in my Jewishness. So, you know, it's an important question because I think it was coming from that arts background that pushed me to realize that I had to use my platform to speak on this. And do you find now that you've made friends or lost friends who used to support you? Because it's easy to, or not easy, it's very hard to see the online trolls, but it's definitely harder when it's people who are who are close to you. Yeah, and just going off of that, like how did the um, industry respond? Like has there been, what, I mean, and I also kind of want to, you can incorporate this into your answer as well. Like what was that threshold crossed between I want to incorporate my Jewishness into the conversation and have it not be an invisible part of my identity any, anymore. What then led you to then talking about it a lot more online in a public setting? And then just back to Isabella's question, like since that, since you made that decision to be more bold and upfront about it and public with it, what has the reaction been both personally and also just from the industry? Yeah, yeah. Great questions. And for Isabella's question, I have to get the violins out because it's not, it's it's not happy ending. Um, the reason why I got a lot louder, because I think that's what happened. You know, you say one or two things and people are like, oh, this is interesting. I've never thought about that. And the reception is was actually okay at the start because people could just, I think people interpreted what I was doing as just kind of throwing out throwing out the beginnings of a conversation that they'd never really been exposed to before. I mean, most people, when you initiate a conversation about anti-Semitism and they've never had it before, will say, oh, I didn't really realize that anti-Semitism was even a thing anymore. Like, is is it a thing? You know, and and you're like, well, yes, it's actually, it's a pretty major thing. Um, <laughs> but the reason why I realized that, you know, it's very difficult to pull the Band-Aid off, right, the first couple of times. And so the first the first few times I would talk about anti-Semitism, I was really dipping my toe in the water. And, and I would do it for a little bit, and then I would kind of go back again and, and not talk about it. And I was doing this on and off since the 2014 conflict, because that was when anti-Zionism really flared up, especially I was in the UK at the time. And I wrote a piece um, for a women's fashion magazine called Grazia around the beginning of 2015 about that experience and moving to LA and kind of how, you know, it wasn't the whole reason why I left the UK, but I it was part of, it was part of my reasoning for sure. And it was no surprise to me that in the year after 2014, Jeremy Corbyn became leader of the Labour Party. You know, it was mm-hmm. all it was all going in a certain direction. Cut to um, about 2016, I actually came offline for a year. I decided to quit Twitter, and I didn't come off Instagram, but I stopped using it as much. And I really. I just kind of had enough of it and I wanted a social media cleanse or whatever the whatever you want to call it. And I and I kind of, as you know, the world that I operated in with artists and other journalists, it was a very my Twitter was very like media heavy. And it was just so much noise and very navel gazing. And I just decided and I knew I was addicted to it and I decided I needed a break. And then in 20 17, 2018, with 
the really terrifying rise of Corbynism in the UK, I knew I could reactivate my Twitter account and really just concentrate on trying to fight that and joining that fight. And my friend, you know, I had a group of friends who we were all in that fight and we got through it together. I mean, we're still in constant, we have a daily threat that we speak to each other still to this day because we're still, I mean, the fight isn't over. It's it's ongoing. Yeah. But um, it was because of that. It was because of reactivating my account. And as I said a little bit before, the, the idea of having a, realizing I had that captive audience that I was like, okay, I'm not, I'm not just ripping the bandaid off anymore and like dipping my toe in. I'm going all the way in now. Yeah. And since last summer, I think my work has become more and more emboldened and louder and harder to ignore, which is why the hate is getting more intense. And, you know, to answer the second part of your question about the reaction, the reaction has been twofold. It's been amazing from our community. Um, And, you know, it's working with regards bringing like waking Jewish people up as I wrote in my tablet article last September you know wake up America and smell the anti-semitism which was really also a long time coming because for me and my fellow British Jews who fought Corbynism we were screaming into the void for a really long time and trying to kind of shake our American friends and say this is going on where you're at too, and you need to start seeing it and dealing with it. Yeah. Um, but it was ignored for a long time, or maybe just like people here hoped that it would not become that, or it would go away, or something. But yeah, it was. It it was that kind of need to to get people to wake up that I see has been successful. I have increased my following. I have, I get messages every day from people who, you know, as I'm sure we all do, who say that they need to, they need the language, the tools of the language to know how to describe what they feel, how to, if they, if they choose to advocate for themselves, because we have a real problem in our community with a lack of education, I think. And I think it's Mm -hmm. a generational issue that, you know, post-Holocaust or or maybe a bit later than that, that people would rather keep their heads down than than educate on these matters. And, and the simple fact is that a lot of Jewish people, although they feel an inherent lack of settled, like settledness, they they don't know how to describe it. They don't know why and they don't know what to do about it. So it's been really successful with regards uniting our community. But in terms of my industry, I mean, the response has been really sad and shocking. And, you know, losses, we've all lost friends. Um, We've all lost, well, I don't know if we've all lost employers, but I definitely have lost a ton of editors. And I try not to take it too personally because it's not about me. My story is important because it's a precedent and an example of what is and will continue to happen to Jewish people. And so I don't center myself in it because I'm not, I'm not a victim. Um, And also 
it, this is about what I represent. It's not about me as an individual, even though it's obviously harming me <laughs> and my and my livelihood and my life, you know, but it's not it's not really about me. It's about Jews. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. You mentioned before um, how you would highlight other artists' identities, how that inspires them and their work. Do you find you learned more about your Jewish identity throughout this experience? Or like the connection between your Zionism and your Judaism, how, do you find that has changed? Or how do you find that has worked out throughout your experience? Yeah, I think somebody asked me a couple of months ago, do you remember the first time you experienced anti-Semitism? And I couldn't remember the first time because all I all I feel is like the reckoning of knowing that any time I experience anti-Semitism, it makes me feel more Jewish. It kind of, it has this incredible, it has the opposite reaction of what the anti-Semite is seeking to, you know, to achieve. I, well, I mean, from my from my experience anyway, and I think for probably all of our experiences, it makes me it makes me root deeper into my Jewish identity, and I definitely have over the past couple of years doing this work become more. The the more I get attacked, the fiercer a Jew I become, and the the louder and the more unbending. You know, I just um, have no qualms identifying myself as a Jew and as a Zionist. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't aware of how, how popular the idea of Zionism being a dirty word had become until I started doing this advocacy more. But it never made me shy away from it. Um, I've always been having combative conversations about that with people. Um, yeah, it's just made me, it's, it's made me louder. I love that. I love that. What would your advice be to somebody who is seeing the content that Jewish activists are putting out, is seeing the standing up for Israel, standing against anti-Semitism online, but is afraid about dipping their toe into that activism, even if they really want to and even if they are very passionate about it? Yeah. Uh, my advice, there are a few things that I would say. Firstly, it's okay to feel the way that you feel in terms of the fear, the trepidation. Um, you're not being alarmist, and it's it's completely normal to feel overwhelmed by it, and and also to feel the pull to engage. Because I've always thought this my whole life. I would rather, I mean, I'm a bit of a control freak and I, I would rather be in a position where I'm at least doing something about the thing that I'm feeling rather than remaining silent. I, I feel like I have more control over the situation if I use my voice. Um, if you're going to speak, make sure that, and we see this all the time with celebrities at the moment, um, make sure that you study and that you know what you're saying before you say it because people are ready to pounce on any mistake. I mean, it's not fair, but your, your capacity for error is negative. Like you, you can't make any mistakes in the public forum of 
social media advocacy because people never forget it and they will pounce on you instantly in droves and it's a horrendous experience. So really, you know, and there are people who have huge platforms who have spoken out. And an example that Ben gives in his book is of Rachel Riley, who knew that she wanted to start advocating. And then Rachel actually like went offline for months and studied and then came back and knew what she was, you know, how to, how to talk about this. But it takes a lot of work to, to do it because you have to, you're going to have to deal with so many um, combative, inflamed, accusatory conversations and you have to be ready for it. Um, but also I would say, try and make sure that you have a community, whether it's online or offline, of a few people who can support you in it because it is extremely isolating work Um it's extremely mentally and physically draining. And you have to have some kind of, you know, insurance that you that you take out on yourself, whether that's with, with people that you surround yourself with who can support you, or if it's, you know, you ask a question about losing opportunities and losing work, try and think of some areas in which you can be useful that you know won't be affected by by doing this kind of advocacy because chances are you are going to lose things you're going to lose opportunities you're going to lose work events you're going to lose friendships um and you you have to be prepared for that and anything that you can do to ensure yourself not necessarily against those things, but by virtue of some other things that can keep you occupied because this work requires balance. You can't just do this 24-7 all the time as your only thing. You will go absolutely insane. Um, Yeah. Yeah, I mean, for me, I actually wanted to, that kind of answered it a little bit, but I wanted to hear as someone else who's sort of in in the music industry in that business, what it's like to actually navigate still representing your people, representing your culture and all different aspects of it, not only like being reaction uh, reactionary to it, to anti-Semitism and sort of balancing that with like the opportunities and, and sort of dealing with how um, specifically in the music industry, finding those places that are not necessarily going to like cancel each other out. Yeah, it's really, really hard. And I'm kind of in the thick of working that out right now. Someone who speaks really well on this is is. Kosha Dills, who I'm sure you mm-hmm. know. Yeah. And yes, he's yes. been he's been dealing with this for years because he's been, you know, he's an amazingly talented rapper and he has never backed down. I mean, he's called Kosha Dills, for God's sake. <laughs> he and he's never he's never backed down from his advocacy for Israel and for Jewish people and has often incorporated that into his art. And, you know, he's someone who continues to to be an artist, to be written about. He's just, he's had to work really hard to find his his people, the critics who will champion him and are not afraid to write about him, the, um, you know, the platforms that aren't afraid to host his work. And it takes, you know, it takes some navigating, but I don't think it's impossible. Nobody should deny you your ability to do what you want to do with your life just because you're a proud Jew. Amen. Amen. Thank you. I like that, that connection. I think that was like hit the nail on the head. My pleasure. 
Oh my God. Eve, there's so much more that we can talk to you about. We could literally sit here for hours. Just in the last answer, I have like four things that I want to bring up about specific circumstances, but I think we're just about- Let's do part two. We could do part two. Let's do part two. Oh my God. Hell yeah. We really, really thank you. The three of us are so inspired by your work and so grateful to have your voice. I mean, not only just the three of us, but- Jewish people. Jewish people. The Jewish community in the world who are planting trees in Israel under your name. Like giving you that honor- that is the impact you have on all of us. You are a, a role model for so many and for so much. And thank you so much again for coming on the pod. You guys are absolute superstars. I mean it. I I love all of your energy and I take my hat off to all of you. Seriously. Um, you're incredible. And thank you for everything that you do for us. Keep killing it, Queen. Thanks so much. <laughs> thank you. Thanks so much. Yalla. Yalla. <laughs> Thank you so much, Isabella. Thank you so much, Noah. Thank you so much, Eve, for the conversation this week. I enjoyed it. I hope the rest of you guys enjoyed it. Please stay tuned next week. All right. So I'm gonna I'm gonna let you guys in on a little secret right now. I got a phone call yesterday from somebody who works at the Vatican. Okay. He's a custodian, he's a janitor who is in charge of the basement, he has told me firsthand that he has seen some sort of gold candelabra in one of the storage closets. It would be stupid of us to not realize that that is in fact the menorah that was taken from us. And it would be just as stupid of us to not devise a master plan to Spy kids, gymnastics over lasers, work our way into the Vatican basement to steal back what is, not steal back, to take back what is rightfully ours. We will liberate the menorah from the Vatican basement. It's coming. Find out how. Tune in next week. All right. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for joining. See you next week. I'm a proud part of the diaspora. In my heart, of whole Jerusalem and Africa. Kicked aside of our land and started gassing us Till we put our foot down cause we had enough Check out the flag that I'm waving Two blue stripes and a huge star David Check out the flag that I'm waving Keep shooting rockets but you never gonna take it